Well, have you ever been in a situation where you have been in great need? Like you were stranded or had the flat tire or ran out of gas or had no money or like have you ever depended on the goodwill of somebody passing by to help you out of a jam? I have. Uh, one, when I was in college, you know, I was a DJ, which means I went to parties and I got to make, you know, all this fun stuff happen. But I was also during the daytime, I was a clown. Does that surprise you? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. So, so like when Halloween rolled around, I decided I had a clown job in the day and a DJ job at night. So I decided to be a DJ clown at night. So I was in the city dressed like a clown DJing a party. Not just any clown. I was like one of those hobo clowns, the homeless clowns, you know, that have the tattered clothes and like the, the rosy cheeks. And, and so I was dressed like a homeless person in the city of Chicago on Halloween. Well, the job ended late, so at like one in the morning, I went to get my car out of the parking garage, and I had lost my wallet at some point during the day. I had no money, and they wouldn't let me get my car out of the garage until I paid. So do you see where this is going? I had to go back to the hotel and start asking people to give me money, dressed like a homeless person, to get my car out of the garage. And I, they were looking at me like, your car, huh? You need, to get your, you need a better story than that, guy. If you're going to get money from us, you need a better story than that. No one gave me money. I would make a terrible homeless person. I generated no revenue. So I had to call my mom and have her come downtown to bail me out of the parking garage at 2 in the morning to get home. Hey, I don't know if you were ever in a situation like that, but when you are, you, uh, you know what it means to be in great need. Jesus shares his story today. It's about the Good Samaritan. You've heard of this story of this person before. A Good Samaritan is someone who sees somebody in need, right, and offers to help them out. Wow, it was a Good Samaritan who came by and did a good deed. And maybe you've been in a position where you've needed a Good Samaritan, right? Uh, But what we're going to see today is this. The Good Samaritan is actually far more than a challenge to go and help somebody who's got a flat tire. The story of the Good Samaritan is far more than challenging you to give a couple more dollars to the next homeless person you see on the street. This story of the Good Samaritan actually is a portrait of an impossible kind of love. Uh, It shows a supreme form of love that no one naturally shows to people in this world. In fact, this is a love that only Jesus can show you this is a love that only Jesus can teach you. And this is a love that he wants us to learn from him. You're going to be challenged today to expand the list of people who you have to love. And you're going to be challenged today to multiply the ways that you seek to love those around you. We're going to grow in love together today. But first, let's pray to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world because the Father so loved the world. And you want us to grow in love The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And if we do not love, we are nothing. So Jesus, help us to grow in this virtue. Help us to grow in this attribute of God himself who is love. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, As you know, if you've been around, we're going through a whole year we're spending in the teachings of Christ. Okay, and we spent three weeks 
talking about the end times and the tribulation. If you were hoping to hear about that, you missed it. Too late. (laughs) But you can go online and catch those sermons. There was a surprise ending, though, to Jesus' teachings on that. Do you remember at the end of last week what he did? He said, if you want to get ready for my return for the end, what you have to do is love other people. So I thought it was only appropriate that we spend a few weeks learning what Jesus had to say about loving other people. So in Luke chapter 10, we, uh, Luke records an incident that happened between Jesus and someone else in verse 25. Uh, it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Hey, here's the first question this guy asks Jesus. Write this down. How do I earn eternal life? What must I do to gain eternal life? Do you know this is actually the most important question you can ask? I mean, he got the million-dollar question, and he, t- and he got to ask Jesus himself, how do I get to heaven? How do I get eternal life, life everlasting? Now, I have a feeling if someone sat down with you and said, tell me what to do to get to heaven, I have a feeling you'd have a few things you might tell them. I think you're going to be surprised at what Jesus said. Look back at what he said. Uh, how, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? <laughs> Try that next time. Someone wants to know how to get to heaven and say, well, what does the Old Testament say? Huh? That's not what they teach you in evangelism class. What what, what does the law say? How do you read it? The law means the law of Moses, which is particularly the first five books of the Bible. You know, so, uh, well, what, what, what does Leviticus say? Huh? And he answered... Like every good Jew would, love, the Lord, love God, love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, do you know when it says lawyer, it means an expert in the law of Scripture. All right, so this isn't like Johnny Cochran, trial lawyer, glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. This is like a different kind of lawyer. All right, this is a specialist in the law of God. So today, it would almost be like a seminary professor who really knows the ins and the outs of Scripture. However, because in Israel, the priests, you know, they, they were also legal. They, they like worked for the government and they controlled the government. Um, the priests and the Levites and the lawyers of the law were also government officials. Okay, so this is a terrifying thought. Imagine if in the state of Illinois, they decided to begin a department of religious attorneys where the state of Illinois hired attorneys who were experts in religion who showed up when you were on trial. Ah, what? These were like government official religious attorneys. Scary thought. And it was this guy who stood up to test Jesus. His motive was speculative, sketchy. He was trying to trip Jesus up so he could go back to his buddies who were the priests and the Levites and the chief officials and be like, I got him. I threw him a question and I got him. That's what he was going for. So what did Jesus do? How do I earn eternal life? Jesus threw the law right back at him. Well, you know the law. And what this guy said, well, it's called, he draws it from um, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Basically, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, 
mind, neighbor as yourself. The first part uh, came from like the Jewish prayer known as the Shema. It's a it's, uh, Jewish prayer that the devout Jews would say twice a day. And it's the first thing they would teach their children, right? So Jesus is basically like, tell me what you learned in kindergarten. And the guy's like, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And then he also shared from Leviticus 8, 19, 18, and love your neighbor as yourself. So how do I earn eternal life? Jesus throws it back at him and says, what does the law say? You're an expert. This guy shares a kindergarten truth, and Jesus says, bravo, you answered your own question. Why did you come to me? But it didn't end there. Write this down. Jesus' answer was, actually the guy gave the answer to Jesus, love God perfectly and love your neighbor completely. You want to get to heaven based on your own works? Do you want to do things that will guarantee you will get to heaven? Love God perfectly. All your mind, strength, soul. That doesn't mean go like, okay, now I'm going to love him with all my mind. Now I'm going to love It means perfectly. With everything in you, love God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. We're all really good at loving ourselves. We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we protect ourselves. Yeah, do that completely to those around you. Love God perfectly, love your neighbors completely, and then you'll get to heaven. But then this attorney, this lawyer, just kind of did one of these. And then it says, in verse 29, Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. But he, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, Luke supplies that. Okay, so we didn't get into this guy's heart and know what he was thinking, but Luke somehow knew. This guy, when Jesus said, yeah, do that and you'll live, this guy was like looking through his own life and he realized that there was a gap. There's a gap between what he knew he had to do and what he was actually doing. So what does every attorney do when there's a gap between the truth and the reality? He seeks to fill it in (laughs) with fluff, right? If there's any attorneys here today, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you. But come on, you know you've got it coming. (laughs) How do I earn eternal life? Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor completely. Follow-up question. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Can't you just hear an attorney doing this? Define neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can you give me a legal definition of the word neighbor? What is he asking? He's asking Jesus to significantly narrow those who are qualified to be loved by this man. So write this down. Here's the second question this guy asked. First question, how do I earn eternal life? Love God perfectly, love your neighbor completely. Second question, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? It's like, it's like you're getting married and you sit down and you try and figure out who you're going to invite to your wedding and then you have to figure out who you're not going to invite. Isn't that awkward? <laughs> who do we have to invite? Oh, you have to invite grandma. Oh, you have to invite aunt so-and-so. Oh, you have to invite. And then there's this list of people who you just don't invite. This guy is trying to trim down the list of people who he is legally, by God's law, required to love. Who's my neighbor? Can we call that list down a bit together, Jesus? Why? Why is he doing that? 
You see, because he knows that he's failing at love. He knows when it comes to loving people that he's failing to secure eternal life according to the law. So what's he going to do about that? Well, he's going to protect his unloving behavior from God's scrutiny. He's protecting his unloving behavior from God's scrutiny by reasoning away his lovelessness and still in his own heart fulfilling the law. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to do the minimum. He's trying to do the least. He wants low-cost love that doesn't demand that he do any more than he has to do, any more than he is doing. He's like the guy at the ring store who's about to propose to his girlfriend, and he says, do you have anything cheaper? Like, I love her, but, but, but I mean, give me, like, the bargain. That's the kind of love he's seeking to show to those around him. Who do I have to love? If you're honest, if I'm honest, this is what we do. This is what we do. In our own hearts, when we're faced with the reality that God expects us to be loving people, we fulfill that standard, you know, with our kids and with our parents and, you know, with our friends. And then, but then there's this group of people who, deep down in our hearts, we feel like we shouldn't have to love them. You know, and so we'll convince ourselves that we're loving people because of how we treat the people who love us. But then, deep in our hearts, we also try and significantly narrow the list of people who we have to love. In other words, we re- redefine neighbor too. If you're honest, you do this and so do I. Based on what that person did, based on what that person said, based on what they haven't done for me, I am legally exempt from having to love you. Are you a loving person? Well, sure I am. Look at how I'm treating my grandmother. What about that other person? Well, they don't count. They're not on the list. This is what we do. Why aren't we more loving? It's because we ask the same question. Well, define neighbor. Let's shorten the list of people who I'm legally obligated to love. The question that he actually should have asked when he first asked, what must I do to earn eternal life, love God and people? He should have then asked, well, what must I do to be a loving person? But he didn't want the answer to that question. He wanted the answer to the question of how, how can I maintain the partial love that I'm showing and still be justified? That's what he wanted to do. John MacArthur, in reading this, says, this man should have felt deep conviction He should have been penitent, broken, contrite, confessed his sin, cried out for mercy. But rather, he drowned out the fire of his own conscience. He drowned out the fire of conviction with the water of self-righteous pride. And if we do that, we'll never become as loving as Christ wants to make us. If in our hearts, listen, if in our hearts we reason our way to not having to show love to those people who are hard to love, we won't become loving. And there's people you want off the list. Admit it. There's people I want off the list. I want to legally exempt myself from having to be loving toward that person. It happens in churches. It happens in families. It happens in business. That's where this guy is going. What will Jesus do to this man who tries to run around and, and skirt the requirement of being loving? 
Well, look at verse 30. It says in verse 30, Jesus replied, now here comes the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Bad day for this guy. Uh, He was going down now from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's actually a treacherous road. You go down 4,000 feet in 17 miles. There's cliffs, there's hills, and thieves love to hide there. This was, imagine you're driving on a windy, hilly, dark, forested road at night, and, and it's raining, like treacherous road. You're on a treacherous road. And then you get like hijacked. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, no clothes, bloody, broken bones. He got so whomped that he's like dying. He's gasping for air. He's dying. He's laying right there. And, and the robbers, all they care, this guy could just die. Interesting beginning to the story. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down the road. A priest, a priest. So here's this guy, he's gasping for it. And he sees a priest. Oh, it's a priest. Oh, this is good. Oh, surely it's a religious man. He, of course, is going to. When he saw him, he passed right by on the other side. He didn't stop. He just just left me here to die. He's still gasping for air, broken bones, vital signs are fading. And then verse 32, so likewise a Levite. Now a Levite was a priest's assistant. So worked at the temple, another religious guy. In fact, the Levites did kind of the dirtier work, you know, kind of the, the menial task. So surely if the priest had somewhere to be or, you know, couldn't stop, surely the Levite who was coming by, who was used to doing things like this, comes by. Oh, oh now a Levite's coming by. Surely I, I'll be saved. And oh, no, he's walking right by too. And the Levite just goes right by, doesn't stop, doesn't help. Jesus takes the religious guys, the priest and the Levite, those who were mastering truth, and he flunks them at love, warning us that we can master truth and flunk love. Jot this down. But who do I have to love? Well, be careful. I can master truth and flunk love. Careful, careful. I've been to seminary. I've taken every Bethmore Bible study there is. Precept upon precept. I've gone through all of them. I've got a John MacArthur study Bible. I know truth. Hey, be careful that faith doesn't turn you into a textbook. I'm a truth dispenser. Pez dispenser. Open me up. Truth, truth, truth. Truth for you. Truth for you. That's all I do is I distribute truth to people. Is that it? That's all you're becoming? You're just a truth person? And when you walk past someone with an opportunity to love them? You see, Jesus, this is, very, this is a pretend story, by the way. These people don't exist. So in this pretend story, he creates this character, I think, you would think, who qualifies as one of the most needy people that is going to be encountered in the day. Who's my neighbor? Define neighbor. I think everyone would agree that this person wouldn't you say, deserves some care and love. I think the priests walking by should have helped. And in fact, I think they would have. 
I think the Levite walking by should have helped. Sometimes scholars get all, you know, they, they try and figure out what the priest was thinking. Oh, maybe he couldn't touch a corpse. Well, maybe, but that's the thing. The story loses its punch if you somehow say, oh, well, of course the priest wouldn't touch him because he couldn't. No, I think he could have, and I think he should have. And that's part of the point, is that the two guys who could have and should have didn't. That's as far as we need to go with it. Could help him, should help him, not helping him. The truth guys get an F. The truth guys get an F. And listen, we can turn into truth people who get an F in love. But you know what? If we do not love, we're nothing. Right? If you get an A in truth and an F in love, you get an F. Who do I have to love? Watch out. Because you can master truth and you can flunk love. But then Jesus goes on to surprise his listeners. Look at verse 33. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed... Okay, when I say Samaritan now, you guys have to like gasp and be appalled. Ready? But a Samaritan... Well, not necessarily surprised. Be a little bit more disgusted. Like, but a Samaritan... You see, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. The racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans was 700 years old. They hated each other. Why? Well, because the Samaritans were half-Jews. Once the Assyrians came in and deported the Samaritans, when they came back, their land had been resettled by Gentiles, so they intermarried. So Samaritans were half-Jews, half-breeds inferior racially than the true Jewish people. Inferior religiously. They had a different temple. They did different rituals. They had a different history. They were judged first. These were the inferior, irreligious, filthy Samaritans. Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. Here's a map. This is a map of Israel in Jesus' day. Um, And you see that purple, that's Samaria. Now down there at the bottom in Judea, that's Jerusalem. So if Jews wanted to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, which is up north, usually they would go around. See to the right, that's the green road. They would take that road all the way around. They wouldn't even walk through there. But do you remember it says where Jesus had to go through Samaria and then he ran into the woman at the well, right? Jesus went through Samaria when he had a chance. So he talked to that woman and it said in parentheses in that chapter, now the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They avoid them. They hate them. They don't want to touch them. So for Jesus to say now a Samaritan, come on, do it again. Now a Samaritan, as he journeyed, (laughs) came where he was. Now this is actually the worst part of this guy's day. This guy's dying. I'm dying. (laughs) The breeze, no. The Levite, no. Oh, no. It's a Samaritan. Oh, no. And the way the story should end is the Samaritan now gets to have the best day of his life because he gets to push a Jew off the cliff. Ha-ha! Then he gets to go home and tell all of his friends, guess what? There was this dying Jew. He's almost dead, and I got to finish him off. Yeah! That's how the story should have ended and would have ended. This Samaritan uh, shouldn't have, shouldn't have 
help to the Jew. You know the Jews went to Samaria in like 130 BC, just tore down their temple and killed a bunch of them? Okay, so like getting Samaritans and Jews in the same room, it's like let's get the NAACP with the KKK and have a dinner party. Okay, it's like, it's like today the parable of the Good Samaritan would be an Al-Qaeda militant was walking by and found a United States soldier wounded and injured and almost dead. We all know how that would end in real life. So the end of the story is meant to be shockingly unbelievable. Something that wasn't happening in that life. Otherworldly. So the Samaritan, when he came by, came to where he was, saw him, and had compassion? Compassion means filled with deep sympathy. He saw him, and he was filled with deep sympathy. His heart was warmed over for this injured Israelite. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. All right, now everybody say, No way. No, but I mean like really mean it. Like, come on. That doesn't happen. It would never happen. That's not the way my world works. The one who should have and could have stopped to help didn't. The one who shouldn't have and couldn't have stopped to help did. This is a portrait of an impossible standard of love. This is much more than challenging you to see the homeless guy and give him an extra dollar this week. This is much more than see the little old lady with the flat tire and pull out your jack. This is find the most undeserving person in your entire life and love them like you love no one else. This is redefining love altogether. Write this down. Love even the person you find least deserving. Careful, I can master truth and flunk love. Who do I have to love? Even the person you find least deserving. Uh, Jesus, who gets on this list of people who I'm legally required to love in order to gain eternal life? Well, start by writing down the person that you hate the most and you'd kill in a heartbeat, and then fill in everyone from yourself to that person. In other words, everyone. Everyone. There's 12 things that this Samaritan did. He saw him. So often we don't even see the need. Saw him. He had compassion. He felt something. He, he inside felt something. He went to him, closed the distance. He bound him up, took care of his physical wounds, poured oil, poured wine. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave him money, gave instructions to the innkeeper, then gave more money to the innkeeper. He did all these 12 things. Took care of his financial needs, took care of his physical suffering, like, if you did this to, pers- to a person you like, you'd be exhausted at the end of the day. Imagine doing it to the person you most hate. The person who you think you could reason your way out of loving them. Imagine doing all, then I gave her a ride, then I gave her lots of money, then I sewed the stitches for them, then I told the innkeeper, then I came back. This amount of money basically would cover perhaps close to a month in a hotel at that day. Would you pay that for your enemy? 
I mean, admit it. You'd rather watch them suffer. So would I. This is an impossible standard of love. Love even the person you find least deserving. Who's my neighbor, everyone? Who's the hero in this story? The one who reached across 700 years of racial hatred and showed love. You're going to walk past people every week and you're going to reason your way out of not stopping. It's not just the homeless. It's not just those who are in a crisis. It's, it's people in your life and you're going to walk past them and you'll have a way you reason that I don't have to be the one. There's excuses. I'm not the one. They're not on my list. They're not on my list. God surely wouldn't expect me to show love to that person. You're walking past them. You're doing it every week and so am I. There's people who you have taken off your list. But we have to put them back on. Even the person we find least deserving and most appalling, even when we're the last one in line who should be helping them, ten other people should be the one who stop, not me. And that's when we stop. So the lawyer wanted to narrow the requirements of love and Jesus broadened them as wide as possible. When you see the last person you want to love, the least deserving person, it's time to love. The original application for this parable, for the man who tried to test Jesus, the original takeaway was, congratulations, you're not going to heaven because you failed the standard of love. That's what this man was supposed to see. I've failed to do what I need to do to gain eternal life. I'm not loving people like I should. I can't keep that standard. Okay, but you see there's also applications for Christians. Jesus didn't then turn to his followers and give them a sermon on how to be loving, but I think it's pretty easy to figure out what we're supposed to take away from this story. We're supposed to hear this story. We're supposed to feel the same conviction. We're supposed to say, I'm I'm the one. I'm the one walking past someone I'm supposed to love. And frankly, we're supposed to say, that's not the way love works in this world. No one loves like that. No one finds the least deserving person in their life and gives them the greatest amount of love on a daily basis. Nobody does that. The truth is, in this parable, in this story Jesus is telling, these are pretend people, okay? The only person actually in this story who was showing this love wasn't the fake, wasn't the fake Samaritan, it was Jesus. He was the only one who was showing this kind of love to the people around him. He was the one going through Samaria. He was the one giving them eternal life. I find it interesting that when Jesus' enemies got really mad at him, do you know what they called him? They called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're a half-Jew. Tell us the story of how your mama got pregnant again. Who was your real daddy? You're a half-Jew. They accused his, basically indirectly accused him of being like the product of some sort of a adulterous relationship. You're a half-Jew. You're a Samaritan. And it's funny that Jesus tells them the story of the good Samaritan. Isn't that funny? The hero is the Samaritan. The religious leaders are walking right by, failing at love. I wonder if this parable foreshadows the day that would soon come where the religious leaders, the ones who should have loved the most, the priests, the Levites, the lawyers, would see Jesus himself, the innocent Son of God, naked and beaten and bloody and half dead, and they would stand there and leave him. I wonder if this foreshadows that day when the lovelessness of these formal religious men would be fully displayed for all to see. He flunked the religious guys at love in this parable. And he calls us to love the person that we even find least deserving. It's an impossible standard. 
This is, this is how Jesus loves you, and this is how he wants to teach you to love others. But we have to confess, that's not how we love. We've all flunk love. We do. And we need him to help us. So here's the conclusion. The conclusion is, I'm greatly loved by God, so I must love greatly. The conclusion is, this is the exact kind of love God has shown me, only Jesus can give me. I'm greatly loved by God, so I must love greatly. This is the love that characterizes all who have eternal life. When Jesus told this parable, this kind of love wasn't being observed in his world. What? That doesn't happen. It's it's Jesus who is giving that love to the world. And then when he rose again, it would be his followers who would go to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Hey, look, you've even, you're reading a book written by Luke. Luke is a Gentile. The fact that the Jews would reach out to Gent, I mean, Samaritans are like, eh. Gentiles are like, Bleh. they wouldn't even eat with them because they're filthy. And here, one of them's writing a book of the Bible. Because the Jews reached him and saved him and gave him all this truth. And this is the love that the followers of Christ would start to show. It's the brand of love that only Christians can truly show. Love for the person who you loathe the most. This is the way of of Christ. Didn't Jesus reach across thousands of years of rebellion on the part of us? Humanity? He reached across that? And saved us. This is the love. You are the least deserving person of God's love. And he reached down and stopped for you. What if he didn't? What if he just kept? What if he didn't stop? But Because this is the love God has for you, this is the love that we're supposed to show other people. It's impossible. You can't show it alone. Jesus needs to teach it to you. You know, when people face the truth of their own lovelessness, it's a wake-up call. Jesus is giving this lawyer a wake-up call. You're not as loving as you think and your love can't get you into heaven. I can change that. I watched this video recently. It's amazing. It was put together by a, uh, a group in New York City that reaches out to the homeless and they asked this question. They did an experiment. They said, if we become so blind to the homeless that we would even walk past our own family members if they were living on the street, And they did an experiment where they put these family members on the street and they had their family members walk past them to see what would happen. I want to show you this video of these people having a wake-up call. My sister and her family have lived in New York for like eight years now. She took care of me when I was a little kid because my parents were working. Every Sunday I cook, and so my uncle calls me and um, he'll be like, hey, what you making? Nobody meets in bars anymore, but I I met my wife in a bar and, uh, you know, 34 years later, still working. My grandma had a lot of costumes from the theater that she started. When we were kids, we'd dress up in those costumes and we'd put on little sketches for the family. In my whole life, I've always felt like we were like a team, my brother and I. I think there's nobody who can understand you quite like your family.
That's my cousin. That's really weird. I know she's not homeless because I just hung out with her a couple weeks ago, but I mean, it's, I did not know that that person walking, when I was walking by, it was her. <laughs> it's, you know, and things are a lot more real than you expect, so. made them say one thing. They went on and on about how much they love my cousin, my wife. My, but, then, but then when they were shown the reality, they were speechless. It was a wake-up call. And I think this story of the Good Samaritan was meant to be a wake-up call for this lawyer. And I think it's meant to be a wake-up call for us. Jesus said in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus is saying that to us this morning. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Don't be the one who walks past those in need. Certainly not the one who deserves, but certainly not the one who doesn't deserve your love. Stop for all of them. Reach out to all of them. Put no restrictions on the people you're willing to love. Put no restrictions on the amount of things you're willing to do to show them love. This is a hard challenge. This is a hard challenge. This is much more than help the little old lady with a flat tire. This has become a loving person. This is becoming a person that you can't become without Christ helping you. You can't. You can't stomach the thought of putting that person back on the list. You can't. You can't do it alone. But when you realize Christ did it for you, that he kept you on his list, that he can teach you this love, then you have hope. Do you know it says in 1 John three seventeen to 18 if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
First Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ephesians 5.1-2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is the kind of love that should characterize the people of God. How can I become more loving? Well, it starts when you realize the people you're passing by. It starts when I realize that injured, needy man or woman or child that's in my life already, somebody who has physical needs, somebody who has emotional needs that I'm not seeing or I'm not stopping or I'm not reaching out or I'm not talking or I'm not calling or I'm not texting or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not caring. I'm not caring. It should start in the household of God, the Bible says. The Bible says we need, if we can't get love right in this room, we'll never get it right in the world around us. If we can't get it right in this room. You know, we start forming loving relationships in this church in small groups. We're not a church with small groups. We're a church of small groups. And really getting into a small group is your way of saying, I want other people to love me and I want to be able to love other people. We challenge everybody to get into a small group because otherwise we can't properly care for you. Um, but I think our church really needs to face this challenge. How do we as a church, as we're walking past people in need in our world, how, as a church, how do we stop? As a church, how do we reach out? How do we touch that person and heal them and bring them along? I mean, I would love for us to be a church that's filled with love for our community. One pastor said that getting the truth of Christ out is the air war Getting the love of Christ out is the ground war. Being the hands and feet of Christ, bringing the love of Christ into the community. How do we do that? I mean, listen, we need, we need somebody to step up and start these compassion ministries. Hey, there are people going through divorces. They don't know who to turn to. They don't know who to talk to. Who's going to step up and start a divorce ministry at our church? When someone calls the office and says, my whole world's falling apart, I don't know who to turn to, what are we going to tell them? You know, who's going to start a prison outreach ministry every month taking some of our people to the jails to pray and reach out and give hope and encourage? Who's going to do that? Who's going to start an outreach to the elderly folks who are all alone, uh, getting the basic minimum of care, family members not even visiting them? Who's going to start that ministry? Who's going to organize it? Who's going to get the team going? Who's going to rise up and do that? Do you know that there's a There's an Alcoholics Anonymous or some form of group that meets at the junior high school across the street. And do you know that they fill up the parking lot of the junior high and the rec center and our entire parking lot every week? Talk about a great need. Talk about a hunger for someone to come along and help these recovering addicts find their way. And we're not doing anything. It's happening over there. And who knows what they're being taught. Who's going to start that? I think we need people in our own church to rise up and and to put these ministries together and to involve other people, people maybe who don't know how to lead that, but they don't have the gift in that, but they're willing to help if someone else is willing to start it. I think this is a wake-up call for our church. I think this is a challenge for our church of showing an impossible love, a kind of love that only Christians can show to the community around them. And I think we have to rise up and get after it. Hey, ask yourself this as we close. Who is it that you're walking past that you need to stop and help? Who is it that you 
do not want to stop for? Who is it that you've been writing off of your list? Jesus says to the lawyer what he says to us. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Show that kind of love that was shown by the Samaritan to the Jew. Let's pray. Lord, this is so hard to hear and so impossible to put into practice. There are just some people in our lives that we would rather not have to love. There are some people in our lives, based on what they've done, what they've said, what they haven't done, we've legally exempted ourselves from having to show them even the basic courtesy. Lord, correct that in us. Correct that in us today. As individuals, help us, Lord, to reach out even to the most undeserving as you reached out to us when we were undeserving. But Lord, there are also those people who are just in great need financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And Lord, just help us this week to see them, to feel compassion for them, to show mercy to them. Help us to stop, to go, to help, and not to convince ourselves that it's not our job don't have the time. Help us to get rid of all the excuses, Lord, as we know when you come back in glory, you will commend us for even the smallest acts of love we've shown to those around us. Remind us, Lord, that love is the proof of faith you admit in your court of law. And help our church to rise up to be the hands and feet of Christ to our community. Lord, help us face the reality that you want us to go and do likewise. Give us opportunities, Lord, to reach out with your love in ways that no other organization in the world can. Lord, we know that we flunk love. We do. So teach it to us. Grow it in us. And use us, Lord, to display your perfect love for others. We pray this in your name.